Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Gardner. It's Thursday, January 5th, 2023. And here's what we're going to talk about this week. It is 2023. It is January. So yeah, let's just kick off with some Alzheimer's drug news, of course. Uh, you know, we'll dig into the findings of the congressional investigation of Biogen's Adjahelm, and we'll look ahead to the expected imminent approval of another medicine called the Canamab. We'll also ask Adam about his list of some of the biggest events in biotech of this quarter and look ahead, of course, to the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference next week. And because the pandemic is not over, but also because Meg is back, we will talk about the latest in COVID-19. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. Thanks for listening. As the company that pioneered the biotech industry, Genentech is known for asking and answering big scientific questions. I'm joined by the company's Chief Diversity Officer, Quita Highsmith, to hear why asking tough questions about health inequity can be a powerful driver of change. Thanks, Angus. As marginalized communities continue to be hit hardest by the pandemic, the need to tackle systemic inequity has never been more urgent. We need to stop tiptoeing around the issues of race and health disparities and shine a spotlight on the uncomfortable truths. Why are clinical trials 85% white? Why should your health be defined by your zip code? We at Genentech are investing deeply and partnering across the healthcare ecosystem to help dismantle the status quo. Visit gene.com slash askbiggerquestions to learn more. That's G-E-N-E dot com slash askbiggerquestions. Okay, let's not bury the lead. Meg, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. I missed you guys. We missed you. How was your break? Well, uh, it was good. I had a baby. His <laughs> name is Louie, um, my second. And he's six months old now, which is crazy. He's giant. Um, yeah, and it was it was it was nice. Nice to spend time with the two kids. Um, but also nice to be back in the fold and at the beginning of the year, when we're getting ready to go to J.P. Morgan <laughs> in three days. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. Wonderful timing to come back from maternity leave. All right. Since this is a, a journalistic enterprise, this podcast, we we do have news to talk about. Yeah. So I was still on leave when I saw the stories start to come out last week about the congressional investigation into the approval of Biogen's Adjuhelm. And of course, I immediately messaged you guys, and I think I just sent you an exclamation mark. Um, obviously, <laughs> I knew you were very busy, but I was like, I just have to talk to Adam and Damien. Um, so let's start with what this investigation was. So basically, this is the culmination of an 18-month congressional investigation, as you mentioned, spearheaded by two committees working uh, jointly to look into two things. One, how Adjuhelm was approved, which if we flash back to summer 2021, was a pretty hot topic with respect to how the FDA conducted itself in reviewing the Biogen drug. And then secondly, the other hot topic in June 2021, how Biogen came to decide to charge $56,000 a year as a list price for that treatment. 
And basically what we got from the investigation was a conclusion that the FDA's process was rife with irregularities, I believe was the the key quote from the congressional document, in that they worked really hand in hand with Biogen rather than the normal, neutral, and even adversarial relationship that is sort of supposed to take place between regulators and the companies seeking to sell products to the American people. And then secondly, I thought more interestingly, maybe not more interestingly, but a peek behind the curtain we don't usually get was how Biogen set that price, $56,000, which, I mean, enraged people at the time, but I think really set in motion what would doom Aduhelm ultimately in terms of the backlash that, that was happening around the approval, the data, and then finally that price. And what we learned basically is that Biogen did its due diligence, asked insurance companies and neurologists about a range of prices and about how they perceived the potential value of this drug based on the data that they had seen to that point. And they were told, you know, pretty convincingly that really it should cost around $20,000 if you want people to have access to it. And if you co- if you price it between 30 and 40, you would be, according to Biogen's own documents, pushing the limit of what the system would support or could support. And then, of course, they chose $56,000 anyway. So that, to me, was was one of the main takeaways, because we so rarely see how the sausage is made with respect to drug pricing. And to see these internal documents, internal presentations, they were largely, was really striking. Yeah, I would say I was just really surprised seeing all of that, because, like, People hate the drug industry so much for what they perceive to be this sort of evil doing behind the scenes of like, let's just milk the public for as much as we can get. Ma-ha-ha. And like, I would say like a high proportion of what the public thinks the drug industry does is probably worse than what the actual drug industry actually does. But in this case, I don't know. Is that the case, Adam? Or what? what is this investigation and these findings going to do for the conversation around drug pricing and the trust in the drug industry right now? Yeah, I mean, I think what we saw... Uh, from the report and mostly from the documents, I, I think that sort of what what the report does is sort of dams Biogen with its own documents, uh, you know, because what we got in sort of the supplementary materials was essentially a lot of Biogen slide decks, you know, presentations made to the board, presentations made to the executive committee about how they were going to price this drug and what their expectations were. You know, they had some you know, just kind of insanely high expectations, you know, in, you know, 20 plus billion dollar peak sales. Um, and as Damien pointed out, you know, they were also getting all of this sort of more cautious advice from, you know, from the from the Alzheimer's field and from insurers saying, hey, you know, tap the brakes a little bit on pricing, which they, you know, which they essentially ignored. So I think that that all sort of, you know, to your point, Meg, that all kind of plays into the sort of the villainy uh, reputation, villainous reputation that uh, biotech and pharma have when it comes to, uh, you know, what's more important, you know, maximizing the profits or uh, patient, patient, you know, patient care, what, you know, what comes first. Um, you know, companies always say that they their priority is the patients. Um, um, and these documents suggest otherwise. And that that is the point, you know, that the that the investigators uh made in in the in their findings of the of the report. So are there any real consequences to this report for either the FDA or Biogen? Haha, <laughs> probably not. Uh, you know, the timing <laughs> is interesting, right? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. the timing is interesting, right? So so the report comes out uh, in the I guess I you know I call it the dead week, right? The week between 
Christmas and New Year's when not a lot happens. Um, and partly that was because, uh, you know, the, the control of Congress is changing over from the Democrats to the Republicans, or at least I guess uh, as of as of this recording of this podcast, maybe it's not entirely sure who's running Congress uh, or at least the, the House side. Um, but, you know, so the report was kind of all the stuff was put out because, you know, they were sort of running out of time. Um, but that also means that there will not be any hearings. Like, so we're not going to see Billy Dunn or Bob Califf from the FDA side brought in front of a congressional committee to sort of answer questions or to, to comment on the report. We're not going to see anyone from Biogen similarly being hauled in front of Congress. Um, the FDA has made some uh, internal uh, policy changes to reflect some of the criticisms that that were brought uh, in the report about the way that they do things, although it's not really clear exactly what they're doing, when they're doing it, uh, you know, and sort of to the extent of how much will, things will change. You know, one of the questions that we still have about this is, you know, did anyone was anybody, uh, you know, did anyone get a slap on the wrist? Uh, at, you know, within FDA, you know, what are sort of what are the repercussions for for this, uh, for these findings, if at all. And, and we we still don't know that. Well, you also mentioned it was interesting timing. And I thought you were going to um, talk about because of the proximity to the FDA decision date or the PDUFA for lecanemab. Oh, that of course, too. <laughs> Esai and Biogen's uh, next Alzheimer's drug. Uh, Damien, maybe just like set the stage for us. I'm sure a lot of the listeners have been following this, but like what's expected there? And then I guess my my follow on to that is, Will there be any impact of what happened with Aduhelm, either from the FDA side or the Biogen side, on on what may happen with lecanemab, do you think? Right. So speaking of coincidences, I think the timing of the report is entirely driven by the change in control in Congress, but it just so happened to arrive days before the FDA is expected to approve yet another Alzheimer's treatment, this one with a connection to Biogen, although perhaps not the authorial stamp of Biogen, in the form of lecanemab, which has the same underlying scientific theory as to how to treat Alzheimer's, but is a completely different drug from Aduhelm, and which I think it's fair to say has little to none of the baggage that Aduhelm brought into the FDA review process in 2021 that set in motion this investigation. But nonetheless, the world has just gotten to see a book-length rebuke, basically, of how the FDA reviewed the last Alzheimer's drug. And within a fortnight of that is the FDA, we assume preparing to publicly approve yet another Alzheimer's drug. And while the treatments are different and the process was different, it's the same FDA and it's the same disease and it's the same division, the same neurology division of the FDA that is doing this. And so, uh, yeah, I guess to your point, it, it creates this awkward moment for the agency with respect not to the actual work of reviewing the drug, but rather to the maintenance of its reputation which I think took a blow in 2021 when everyone was castigating them for approving Aduhelm. And I think that, I don't know, <laughs> that bruise has been flicked uh, with this, the release of this report. That's a horrible yeah, image. Yeah, wow, that's very... Everyone, but it's too late now. Very uh, yeah, illustrative, <laughs> evocative. Yeah, um, feeling good, podcasting well, <laughs> brand new year. Anyway, uh, so so yeah, so that sets the stage. We, we expect, so as you mentioned, the, the decision date that the FDA has agreed to is Friday. It's possible that by the time this podcast is publicly available, that decision will have come to pass, and it is widely expected to be an approval. So 
you know, lecanemib is different, as I mentioned, you know, it doesn't have the clinical baggage. We saw in detail the phase three data in which there seems to be a consensus forming around among neurologists that lecanemib leads to a real, albeit modest, benefit for patients with the early, early stages of Alzheimer's disease. There's been more of a deep dive into its potential safety. But even in that context, it seems like most of the commentary is this is a drug that could help some people. And the debate going forward will be which people, you know, who among the the millions of people with Alzheimer's disease is likely to benefit from this rather than the conversation a year ago or and, and in the past beyond that around Adjuhelm, which was, does this work at all? Is it responsible to approve this, etc.? So the 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 tone has changed, but from the perspective of the FDA, it, it is, like I said, an awkward situation. They are in the difficult position of saying Yes, you just read and heard all of this criticism of how we did this last time, but this is different and trust us this time. How much of a difference does it make that Esai has been in charge of this one versus Biogen being in charge of the last one? I think it makes I, – I, I guess I think it makes a difference, Meg. Yeah, I, I think um, you know they've handled it differently. The FDA is very fortunate that Esai was able to – conduct that confirmatory study, you know, it's a really weird situation, right? And that what we're going to get, you know, probably Friday or, you know, whenever uh, we're going to get the accelerated approval of lecanemab, right? Based on amyloid lowering, um, you know, and obviously that requires a confirmatory study, which ASI has already done. And as Damien had said, is already presented and published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So in some way that kind of takes the pressure off of the FDA in that, they're not going to have to sort of answer those questions like, well, you know, you're approving this, you're approving another Alzheimer's drug based on a biomarker, you know, on based on preliminary evidence. And how do we know that it really works? Well, the evidence is there. It, it may not be reflected necessarily right now in the label, but it will be eventually. So that kind of the FDA is sort of helped by that, I think, a little bit, you know, but I think ASI, you know, for all the mistakes that Biogen made, and we don't need to go into all that again. But like, I think ASI sort of learned from that and and pretty much did things in a way that I think helps the you know helps the credibility of the drug. Even though there always is going to be debate about the meaningfulness of the benefit, um, but there really isn't any debate that you know the data are are real or not. But Adjuhelm also sort of casts a long shadow in terms of the payment environment because. CMS, Medicare, came out with this coverage decision where essentially they said they're not going to cover amyloid-lowering drugs um, except in certain clinical trials. Is that when they're only approved on an accelerated basis? So just maybe, Damien, lay out that landscape um, and what that means for this, this time period for patients. Yeah. So as we focused on the FDA, you know, this week is arguably pivotal in terms of how they handle it. But for ASI, and then, you know, more importantly, for people who might benefit from lecanemab, this is step one in what is going to be a long process. So if lecanemab wins accelerated approval this week, that really just sets in motion the process by which ASI has to make its case more broadly. So First, they'll have to apply for full approval, um, which is necessary for them to reach more patients. But most importantly, as you mentioned, Medicare, which balked at Adjuhelm and all but declined to pay for it in almost any conceivable way, has has the same policy for all treatments like it, which includes lecanemab. So in order for ASI to reach patients, in order for this drug to really do anything meaningful societally, 
ASI has to convince CMS, which controls Medicare, to reverse that position or at least alter it such that lecanemab can be reimbursed for. Because the estimate is something around 85 to 90% of people in the United States who would meet the criteria for this drug, that early stage of Alzheimer's disease, are Medicare beneficiaries. So if the government doesn't want to pay for it, it is a non-existent product. And that process begins, well, apparently it's kind of already begun. Uh, ASI told us in the fall that they were already having conversations, um, you know, I don't know to what detail or, or what the, you know, what legally they can share with uh, a government agency when it hasn't yet been FDA approved, but they are definitely focused on this and will begin showing their data to Medicare, um, making the case that this is a drug, which again, the price we don't yet know. So that's important. Um, but this is a drug who that provides value to society. And we've seen a few estimates of what that value might be. Um, ICER, the nonprofit that runs cost-effectiveness analyses for new medicines and interventions, said that between $8,000 and about $20,000, lecanemab would be cost-effective based upon the benefits that it's demonstrated. ASI ran its own cost-effective analysis, which maybe unsurprisingly uh, <laughs> led to some relatively larger numbers, but even that was between $10,000 and I believe about $35,000. So in any case, all of the estimates are below what Agihome costs. And I think we can reasonably expect that ASI will not set a price outside of its own publicly disclosed cost-effectiveness estimates. So this drug will be cheaper than the last one. And as I mentioned, the you know as Adam also went into, the clinical data are less murky than those that accompanied Aduhelm. So the expectation is that ASI will have more success uh, in in dealing with Medicare than Biogen did, but that remains to be seen. And what about the safety profile of the drug? I, I think you know. Even I say even, but like even the popular you know media were covering the data in the New England Journal. Um, but there was a lot of attention paid to some concerns about safety. What should people think about there? Right. So the the most common side effect that we see with these types of drugs is uh, brain swelling, uh, potentially small bleeds in the brain. Uh, it's commonly called aria, uh, and uh, you know. Most of those cases are asymptomatic, but in some cases they can be serious. Um, there have been, uh, I think, sort of, I think three patients who have died, sort of in, in media reports, uh, patients who have died that have uh, associated with kind of these brain bleeds, this brain swelling. Uh, that is the uh, side effect that physicians are most concerned about. Um, I think it's probably anticipated that there will be something, you know, maybe in the label about some cautious language about about, you know, extra monitoring of these patients, you know, in the phase three study that that ASI run. I mean, actually, the, the, the rates of ARIA in in the phase three study were actually lower than some of the other al Alzheimer's drugs that we've seen. Um, but, you know, I know like this week, for instance, there was a case report that was published in, in the New England Journal of Medicine about one of those patients that was also associated with patients who take uh, blood thinning medicines. You know, a lot of people who are on blood thinners or take aspirin, um, did that contribute to, you know, the this sort of these bleeding episodes? And so that's something that I think will be um, monitored. Uh, it's not something that's going to derail the approval of the drug, but it certainly could you know, maybe restrict the use of the drug that, you know, for, for people who have, who maybe, who, let's say, who are on a blood thinner, um, who might be candidates for lecanemab, you know, there, you know, I've talked to some physicians who, who are, you know, either the, sort of thinking that maybe those patients shouldn't be on lecanemab, or at least those patients would require extra monitoring. 
just to wrap up this portion of the podcast, because I'm sure our wonderful producer, Teresa, is like, stop talking. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> stop talking about all We'll make the rest of the podcast very short. Um, you know, when Adjuhelm was approved, before all the, you know, bad stuff started happening, there was this expectation that this could be, like, the biggest drug of all time. And, like, everybody who, you know, qualified was going to take this medicine and it was going to be this just massive new drug. I mean, not just in the eyes of Biogen, but in the eyes of Wall Street analysts. And, you know, a lot of people thought this was going to be a really major new medicine. Is lecanemab going to be that? Is that this moment? Or are we just seeing, like, a slower phase in of of new Alzheimer's medicines? I think the latter. I think the Adjuhelm debacle was in many ways a chastening experience, obviously for Biogen, which changed out its upper management in the wake of it, um, but also for analysts, for everybody involved in this, that maybe <laughs> that moment where these prognostications were being made, everybody was a little over their skis. And I think part of why the feeling is different this time is because of ASI itself, which has been much, much more conservative in its public statements around this, both in terms of talking about the pricing and in terms of talking about how building this, building lecanemab into a meaningful medicine will be sort of an iterative process, beginning, as I said, with this expected uh, accelerated approval, but then mounting slowly from there, both in terms of convincing regulators, but convincing the broader neurology community that it is a worthwhile medicine. And also, ASI has been relatively conservative in in describing you know some of those safety risks that Adam mentioned, and in describing the care and monitoring and conversation that will need to happen in order for families, patients, and physicians to decide whether a given person would benefit from this drug. So it does feel like everybody is approaching this one with you know the lessons of the last one. I haven't seen at least the same kind of Wall Street enthusiasm for this. I think as a reaction to both the the shock and the backlash and everything that happened with Adjuhelm, but also, like I said, kind of following ASI's lead, which I think has been less bullish publicly and a little more, I was going to say contrite, but that's not the right word, a little more, showing a little more humility, let's say, than perhaps Biogen Management did circa 2021. Yeah, I think Wall Street has moved on from thinking that Alzheimer's drugs are going to be the, the biggest selling drugs of all time. Now, now they think that weight loss drugs are going to be the biggest subject <laughs> of all time. But that, that's a discussion for another day. Um, I'd also like to move on uh, and talk about JP Morgan, which c- comes up next week. Obviously, everyone knows that it's the sort of the biggest healthcare investment conference of the year out in San Francisco. I'm going. Meg, you're flying out there. What uh, What's in store for you over the next few days? My plans are to wake up very ridiculously horribly early in the morning. <laughs> We're, I think our coffee service, my wonderful producer, Leanne, she told me it starts at 2.30 in the morning. So thank you, Weston St. Francis. Yeah, I was going to say, tell people how, because, it, because it's in San Francisco, it's on the West Coast, and you are serving a largely kind of East Coast audience, certainly like the markets audience, like how you have to do these interviews so insanely early. It's because we work East Coast hours, you know, from San Francisco. And that also means that these CEOs who we are interviewing also have to be up at the crack of dawn or pre-crack of dawn um, to join us. Meg, I have also heard that you have the only interview with the new Biogen CEO, Chris Yes, is in the 5 a.m. hour. <laughs> um, so I'm very excited to catch up with him. Yeah, I was I was a little like mad jealous about that because, you know, we we wanted to sit down with Mr. Wiebacher, but we're told that his schedule is all filled up. 
and that the only media interview he's doing is with you. I mean, maybe you could get him in the so, 4 a.m. hour. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will see his presentation on later Monday, but but uh, kudos to you for grabbing that one. Thank you. Um, well, it'll be it'll be very interesting, obviously, given everything we've been talking about with Biogen. A new CEO who's come in, who we know from his time running Sanofi. In the interim, he's been doing a lot of Boston biotech stuff and venture capital type stuff. Um, so... You know, it'll be just very interesting to hear how he's thinking about the job and the company. Um, and then we've got a lot of other fantastic CEOs of, you know, some of the largest drug companies um, as well. So pretty much, you know, name a giant drug company. And we, we likely have that person. We don't have every single um, CEO. But um, I think it'll be really, really interesting. Um, Adam, what are you looking forward to at the conference? And Damien, how excited are you that you're not going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Damien's not going. He gets to stay home. I think, you know, Meg, I think I, I like you probably, you know, we, I think we sort of look at this as, you know, kind of turning, you know, kind of just turning the page from the year prior to the current year and kind of hearing from these CEOs or whoever we speak to just to like kind of what their thoughts are for the for the coming 12 months, what their strategy is, what their priorities are. Um, and I think it's also very interesting when you have done this for a long time um, to to kind of listen for the things maybe that are not said. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there are instances where maybe you know companies have uh, emphasized things in the past and 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 if you don't hear them emphasize those things this time you wonder well are you know are they shifting strategy or is something going on? So there's a little bit of nuance there I think. Um but it always is good to hear kind of from the companies and kind of just get as they sort of set expectations, whether those are, you know, for earnings or sort of financial expectations or clinical expectations, kind of like milestones and, and where they are in the various stages of drug development uh, and to kind of just you know, set the table for 2023. And, and I do look forward to those kinds of presentations and, you know, and interviews that, that, that you do. And Damien, what's the calculus for you in terms of not going? Like, <laughs> do you are you going to watch the presentations? Yeah. Are you just like we've got enough stat presence there? I don't need to be there. Like, how are you thinking about it? All of the above. I mean, each year I uh, get older, and so the notion of say. and I don't I don't get up at two thirty in the morning when I'm at JP Morgan, but I do get up early, and the whole thing can be physically. You taxing stay up until two thirty in the morning. Well, <laughs> uh, oh yeah, let's not let's not go into that story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we do have we do have plenty of a presence. But personally, I mean, I, I'm wondering whether I'll feel a pang of regret as as it plays out. I do plan to watch some presentations from mm, home and it. just be be helpful to my my colleagues in the field, as it were. Um, but I am curious as to what the vibe will be because this will be the first in person. JP Morgan Healthcare Conference since January of 2020, which I remember quite well, um, not least because there was a specter in the minds of a lot of people of what was then a sort of murkily understood uh, respiratory virus in Asia, um, which would come to be quite important all over the world. And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm curious to hear from, from the likes of you all and everyone there what the vibe is, whether it's a little uncomfortable, given that the pandemic is not over, or whether there is this sense of sort of like pent up desire to convene, to go to the Western St. Francis and be cramped and be miserable for old time's sake. Well, speaking of that, Meg, do you what do you think about masking in the hotel? Like uh, we we know that the Western St. Francis Hotel, where the J.P. Morgan conference is held, is let's just call it cozy. <laughs> like how much how much masking do you think we're going to see? Uh, 
Well, I heard you guys talking about the masking at Ash, where apparently on the doors Which it like asked people to mask and it was non-existent. I mean, I do yes. think, and we can talk about it now, you know, COVID, there is potentially, you know, higher numbers of COVID coming because of this more transmissible subvariant of Omicron. Uh, but I don't, I'm not convinced that's going to make that much of a difference to people. I would say you're going to see a small proportion of people masking, but some people will be masked. I will be masked except for the moments that I am on live television, um, which is what I did yesterday on my first day back in the CNBC headquarters office. Um, I wore my mask all day and then I like went down to the studio set and like took it off right before I went on with Kelly Evans. And I was like, I just hope I don't have mask lines on my face. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure I did. Uh, and I probably will from JP Morgan as well. But um, it just makes me feel more comfortable. Yeah, I, I have not been a mask person. I, I, I will say that I have basically stopped wearing them. But I, I feel like just knowing the rooms and the corridors at that hotel, I, I mean, I don't know if it will make any difference at all. You might have wanted to mask before COVID was in existence at J.P. Morgan. Everybody comes uh, yeah, back from exactly. that conference sick. And so, like, like Meg, like, you know, like, the corridors there, like, in between, like, how small yeah. they are. And, you know, I anticipate a lot of people being there. And so I... Well, yeah, I guess that's a question. Do you think there's going to be as many people there as I do. in previous years? I, mm. I think there will be a lot of people, you know. And look, that doesn't take that many people to make that place feel claustrophobic, right? So uh, I, 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 I'm sort of leaning towards, like you, wearing a mask while I'm inside the hotel because it's just... I would just like to implore everyone listening to this podcast, and I, I don't think any of our dear listeners would do this, but don't go to the conference if you're, if you, especially if you knowingly have COVID, and yes, if you're severely sick, and like if you're going to be sneezing on people, coughing, just please, if, like please don't go. And I know there are colds, yeah. and and like we have, there's a spectrum of what's okay, but like let's not knowingly go to a conference and give people COVID. People wouldn't do that, right? Yeah, I think that's going to be so, so, that's going to be something that's going to hangs over. Uh, we'll hang over J.P. Morgan and all the festivities uh, that go on during the week. Um, you know, we did mention, you know, and, and I didn't mean this as a transition, uh, Meg, but maybe maybe it can be, you know, just COVID and what's going on in China. I know you've been doing some reporting uh, and looking into kind of the situation there. And maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of an update. Yeah. So it was funny. You know, yesterday was my first day back to work uh, and <laughs> I had a request from a show to do a hit on COVID in China. And I was just thinking about like three years ago when I left the office, I was reporting on COVID in China. <laughs> <laughs> like, In some ways, China was being more forthright about its numbers then than many experts think it is being now. Um, the expectation is that because they've lifted this no COVID or zero COVID policy, which which the you know vast majority of public health experts thought was completely untenable, um, but now they've completely done away with it. And th the thought is just like massive numbers of people are, are getting COVID and it's going to overwhelm the healthcare system and that China is not accurately reporting numbers on deaths and severe disease. Um, the other thing that the global health community is concerned about is that spread like this could lead to the the rise um could lead to the rise of new variants that are uh, more dangerous, um, more transmissible, more severe. Um, so far, and there was a meeting this week with the WHO uh, and Chinese scientists, um, China says they have not detected any new variants. 98% of the variants circulating there, at least in the cases they uh, sequenced, were two Omicron subvariants. Um, 
Separately, the WHO said it's closely watching a, a variant that's been gaining a lot of steam here in the United States called XBB.1.5. And when I was looking at this variant name, I was trying to get caught up when I was gone. I'm like, what happened to like BA1 and BA2? And now they're all these like, they sound like amalgamations. Yeah, they used to have of, like, names, right? We've had like the Greek alphabet, yeah. right? Now it's. Now it I know, sounds now like a are Star Wars robot name. Nicknames. XBB yeah, to I've me seen on Twitter. Like, you know, Star Wars robot. Well, somebody's calling this one Kraken. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God. But um, <laughs> it's now 40% of sequenced cases in the last CDC data and the estimate. That's up from 4% about three weeks previously. And so it is thought to be more transmissible for a few different reasons. We don't have data on the severity, but it's not expected necessarily to be different from other Omicron subvariants. Um, but, you know, there is a concern that there's there's more COVID going around. Um, and so, you know, there's sort of however you perceive the danger of more COVID going around is how you perceive that, you know, how you receive that information. Um, but that is what's happening. Well, well, Stat is sending a lot of people to JP Morgan. And if we all get COVID, then Damien, you're not going and you'll just have <laughs> to handle biotech coverage for the entire website uh, for a week or so. So good luck with that. At last, my time to shine. <laughs> We could end it there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we didn't talk about the most important catalysts for this quarter. I don't know, Adam. Why don't you just rapid fire Adam? What do you guys call that segment that everybody hated? Rapid fire? Lightning round? Lightning round? <laughs> Lightning round? It was like a I'm big joke that, that people didn't like it. it. I liked you it. Keep that information from me. <laughs> I think our listeners are looking at their watch like, this used to be a brief podcast. And yeah. Now it's well. stretching on for a long time. Um, yes, Meg. Yeah. So, you know, there are some. You know, pretty significant uh, events that people are looking towards. Um, I'll just rattle off a few of them. Uh, you know, Corona Therapeutics, they were actually one of the bright spots last year with a, a new treatment for schizophrenia, kind of treating schizophrenia in an entirely new way. Uh, they had a positive phase three uh, study last year. They've got a second phase three study that will uh, read out in the next, uh, in the, sometime in the next three months. And that's a, that's a pretty important event that people are looking at. Um, you know, we talk a lot here about CRISPR and genome editing and gene therapies. Um, with respect to sickle cell disease, we've got two, uh, two treatments that will be submitted to the FDA. I think people are keeping close tabs on. One of those is for a partnership between uh, Vertex and CRISPR Therapeutics. That's the CRISPR-based treatment for sickle cell. And then uh, Bluebird Bio has got a gene therapy for sickle cell. They will also be submitting that to the FDA. So it's kind of interesting. You've got these two different um, potentially curative treatments for sickle cell essentially hitting the FDA at the same time that will be reviewed at the same time. I probably a bunch of us imagine that the FDA may hold an advisory committee meeting and where both of those could be reviewed side by side. So I think that that's going to be really interesting. And, and you know, the whole gene therapy, CRISPR stuff, uh, you know, in terms of Damien and I talked about this last week, just a, that's a it's a it's a key. I think it's a, one of the key themes for 2023 in that, you know, we've got these therapies, we've got a bunch of them approved. Um, but are they a business? You know, how will these how will these do in the market? You know, are they going what's going to be patient access? What will patient access look like? What will the insurance reimbursement issues uh, look like? over the next year um, as these things are marketed out there. So I think that's a that's a big one. Actually, before we go, I, I do want to say thank you to Allison DeAngelis, who did such a fantastic job on the podcast uh, while I was out. I loved listening to it. Um, and so I did want to add in there my appreciation that it was still such an enjoyable uh, listen and somebody so capable um, took the reins while I was gone. So thank you, Allison. Here, here. Thank you, Allison. 
And with that, another episode of The Read Out Loud is in the books. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Bonato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you think Meg and I are going to get COVID at J.P. Morgan. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.